Hello listeners this is Aditya Shri Mankar welcome to a new episode of Investing Fundas Investing Fundas curates investment ideas economic data and business news from India and abroad and presents the best bits to you in just a few minutes This podcast is for information purpose only and is not intended to be investment advice In today's episode I'll be featuring the following topics. Number 1, monopoly lies. Number 2, big results with tiny improvements. Number 3, nobody is crazy. And number 4, my startup idea of the week. Peter Thiel in his book 0 to 1 speaks about the lies monopolists tell the world to protect themselves. They know that bragging about the their monopoly invites being audited, scrutinized and attacked. Since they very much want their monopoly profits to continue, they tend to do whatever they can to conceal it. They usually by exaggerating the power of their non-existent competition. Think about how Google talks about its business It certainly doesn't claim to be a monopoly but is it one it depends a monopoly in what let's say google is a prime is primarily a search engine as of may 2014 it owns 68% of the search market with its closest competitors being yahoo and B, uh, and uh, microsoft which both have about between 10 and 20% uh, market share if that doesn't seem dominant enough Consider the fact that the word Google is an official entry into the Oxford English Dictionary as a verb. Don't hold your breath waiting for that to happen to Bing. But suppose we say that Google is primarily an advertising company. That changes things. The U.S. search engine advertising market is 17 billion dollars annually, and online advertising is 37 billion dollars. The entire US advertising market is a hundred and fifty billion dollars, and global advertising is five hundred billion dollars. So even if Google completely monopolized the US search engine advertising, it would own just three and a half percent of the global advertising market. From this angle, Google looks like a small player in a competitive field. Ben Carlson on his blog A Wealth of Common Sense gives young people some basic investing advice. Young people who complain that it's impossible for them to save money due to student loans or rent or low wages etc should follow these two steps. Number 1 start small and number 2 automate it. There's a sense of loss in some ways when you start saving because delayed gratification means less fun today and even small amounts can really add up over time because the biggest asset that you have as a young person is your human capital and the long way around long runway ahead of you to allow compounding to do the heavy lifting the second point is why you automate it is that you will never save what's left over at the end of each pay period pay yourself last doesn't work very well because something will always come up and if you don't automatically save you'll eventually give up or forget to save in the first place 
So let's start by assuming a young person can start out by saving $25 a month. That's a realistic assumption. So if you start saving from age 22 to 65, you will end up with a little more than 60k. And it's not exactly $60,000. It's not exactly enough money to retire on. But what if instead of saving just $25 a month, you slowly but surely increase the amount you save every year. What if you saved $10 more per month every year? So this year you save $25, next year you save $35. The $60,000 number would become $400,000. Every little bit helps when you are young and have decades and decades ahead of you. Building wealth from a young age doesn't require a, a ton of money as long as you remain disciplined and work your way up to a healthy savings rate. Morgan Housel in his blog The Collaborative Fund speaks about that aspect of behavioral finance where an investor thinks of a thesis to make an investment. However ridiculous it may be, which actually does not make him or her crazy. For example, the lowest income households in the US on average spend $400 in a year on lottery tickets, which is nearly four times the amount spent by highest earning households. The low income Americans are blowing the emergency funds in a 1 is to 300 million you know, scheme. They must be crazy. Well, Morgan Housel says no one is crazy. The decision to buy a lottery ticket or a stock or a house or whatever makes sense to them in that moment and checks all the boxes they need to check. Every decision everyone makes is rationalized in their head when they make it. This is the cornerstone of behavioral finance. Is that That's where most people assume it's a field whose documented flaws apply to other people but not themselves that's because we judge others solely based on their actions but we rarely hear their internal justifications two things that Morganhausen says we should be careful of or keep in mind when making a decision be careful number one is be careful of taking cues from other people when you have no idea what they are thinking Many finance and investment decisions are rooted in watching what other people do and either copying them or betting against them. But when you don't know why someone behaves like they do, you won't know how long they'll continue behaving that way or what will make them change their mind and when this will stop. Bubbles claim victims when short-term momentum entices traders with ever-shortening time horizons who then inadvertently influence the behavior of long-term investors. Number two, no one is crazy, including you, but everyone justifies actions based on poor reasoning, including you. Few people make financial decisions purely with a spreadsheet. They make them at the dinner table or in a company meeting or with your own unique of view of the world. But in a way that it weaves together a narrative that works for you. The fun part of behavioral finance is learning how flawed other people can be. The hard part is trying to figure out how flawed you are and what stories make sense to you 
but would seem crazy to others. And now moving on to my startup idea of the week. This week's startup was started by a healthcare sales professional without any prior experience in the F&B space. He conceptualized a homemade kitchen food brand called the Punjabi Kitchen and began catering homemade meals to consumers in Gurgaon. This venture lasted 18 months and shut down in early 2018 as their revenues at that time of closing were rupees 50000 a month versus the expenses at rupees 75000. The business model initially was a B2C model with the intention of pitching to corporates and then moving on to B2B customers. His wife was the main chef and she was in charge of the main operations of the whole business while the founder Amit Gonjia was in charge of marketing and logistics. They created an online menu and designed the food packaging and the whole process of starting up took them about 3 months of preparation which included incorporation of the company hiring creative freelancers hiring web uh, web designers doing a photo shoot building marketing material negotiating with food platforms like zomato and swiggy for their food delivery service shortlisting uh, and engaging influencers for social media marketing the pricing of their food was the biggest puzzle that they had to solve they were they were not close to the market benchmark as the competition was available at half the price the punjab kitchen didn't have a much better product to show for it and while the packaging was good the customer perhaps didn't care too much about it the only two ways that this problem could be solved by was by achieving economies of scale which were meant to have thousands of customers so that the cost of producing a meal would get reduced or to reuse the packaging of the food delivered and both of these were not possible options so after working out a basic profit margin they decided to increase their price of their product to 150 rupees a vegetarian meal the bigger issue was still not being able to get enough customers for that price point the market is really price elastic especially for the kind of cuisine that they were offering they could not have been successful at the price point at which they were playing without making any kind of changes either on products or packaging or elsewhere in the value chain and now time for my mutual fund tip of the week The main advantage of a balanced fund is that it acts as an equity fund in a bull market taking advantage of the market upturn by increasing the equity allocation and it acts as a debt fund in the time of a market downturn by shifting to a higher debt allocation. Time for Warren Buffett's quote of the week. He says Wall Street is the only place that people ride a, ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Thank you all for listening in. Invest wise, invest safe, invest profitably. Visit equisearch.in for more podcasts and blogs. 